Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's uh, turn again to the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 3. And last uh, Sunday, we looked at verses 1 through 10. We want to complete that section with verses 11 through 13 today. But I know that many of us were out last week because of the very serious storms that were in our area. I was tempted to just preach the same sermon again and see if anyone noticed. <laughs> My sanctification is not yet complete. But, uh, but even if I did, that would be okay, as long as it was uh, biblical, right? Because Peter said, the Apostle Peter that is, said that all he did was to remind people of what they already know. That's the reason we come to church regularly, is to be reminded of eternal truths that, that never changed, but we tend to forget. Last week we saw the mystery of God's grace. The Greek word mysterion, which we translate in the English Bible as mystery, simply means something that had been hidden in the past, but now God in his sovereignty has chose, chosen to reveal in the present. And we saw last week that God used means to reveal his will. And the primary means that God has chosen to reveal his will to man is through the Bible. And the Bible, of course, was written by men divinely inspired. And the Apostle Paul was one of those men. In fact, he was uh, one of the primary human vehicles through which God has uh, chosen uh, to reveal his, his will. The particular mystery, though, that we saw last week that God has chosen to reveal through the Apostle Paul is found in verse 6 here in chapter 3. Let's just read it. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, that was mind-blowing, especially for Jewish people. The idea that God's eternal plan of salvation included people different than them. People who did not have the covenants and promises, did not have the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, did not have God's written revealed world. And yet, this is what God revealed through Paul, that the gospel was for all kinds of people. And so let's uh, finish that thought today by reading the first 13 verses here in chapter 3. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed... You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote, wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I am made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ." And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of the word of God. A couple months ago, it was time for me to trade in my car and uh, we talked about it, my wife and I, and we realized that the minivan that she had been driving, which is the primary means of transportation for our four children, was uh, getting a little old. And so uh, rather than uh, getting me a new car, we decided it was time for her to have a new car. And so if you know how I shop, um, I don't. Um, I buy. Shopping is not a recreational activity to me. It is a punishment. And so... Um, the way I buy things, including cars, is uh, I, I go online and I do the research and I find the price that I think I like and the model I like and my wife picked out the color and I went to the dealership to buy a specific car that they had on their lot. It was a done deal. I wasn't even going to test drive it. After all, we have another van just like it that we park next to it every night. And so when I got there, though, the man that was assigned to me to be uh, my salesman was obviously Middle Eastern in descent. And as we talked, it became obvious that he was Muslim. And so I decided to take my test drive. <laughs> and so uh, we got in the car and we made the first ride out onto the uh, bypass road. And I said, um, sir, I've got a confession to make. I'm gonna buy this car, but I'm also gonna tell you about Jesus in the time we have around this block. And so uh, I used that opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he was very open, very kind, and um, shared the gospel. He told me about his family and some of his own beliefs. It became very obvious he was a nominal Muslim at best, culturally only, and he had uh, very little faith in what he espoused to believe. In fact, when we got back to the dealership, he said, let me tell you what I believe, Pastor. He said, I have two adult sons that I'm very proud of. And I tell them all the time, religion is like a car. It really doesn't matter what model you buy. If you take care of it, it will get you where you want to go. How very sad. Because he articulated what is the philosophy, I believe, of the vast majority of Americans today. Which is that all paths lead to heaven. The idea is that God is at the mountaintop, eternal life is up there, and it doesn't matter if you start on the north side or the east side, the west side. As long as you pick a path that's heading upward and you're sincere in your beliefs, all those roads are going to converge on top and we're all going to live happily ever after in heaven. Now that's a beautiful thought and sentiment, but it's simply not true. And we just happen to be overlooking the stack out there at Grapevine where all the highways, 114 and 26, and they all go into separate directions. And I said, sir, can you imagine when you go home tonight? I said, where do you live? He said, I live in Plano. I said, can you imagine going home to your wife tonight and say, I can pick any path I want to choose. As long as I'm sincere, that'll get me home and it will get me there. He said, well, no, that's ridiculous. I said, well, the Bible says religion is not like a car. Religion is like a road. And the path that gets you to heaven is through a small gate and the path is narrow and few there be that find it. See, the criticism that's often leveled against biblical Christianity is that it's too exclusive. And there's some truth in that. 
Biblical Christianity is exclusive in that there's only one way to heaven. But it's incredibly inclusive in that the Bible says all who will may come. So it doesn't matter, Paul is saying, whether you're Jewish or Gentile or Muslim or Hindu, if you will repent of sins and bow your knees to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, turn from all of those other things that you had been depending on and trust Christ alone, you will be saved. And here is this mystery that is now revealed that God is putting together from every tribe and tongue and people group, from the Middle East and from North Africa and from Central Asia and South America and North America, he's building a building of which Christ, as we sang this morning, is the cornerstone. And that building is being built stone after stone, person after person, to be an eternal dwelling place for God. And Paul compared it to the human body with Christ as the head. It's one body, but it's composed and comprised of many individual parts. And all of those parts are to work in harmony and unity so that God is glorified. Here is that mystery that has now been revealed. But as you know, God chooses to reveal mysteries through men. And so last week we looked at the man Paul, the messenger, who describes himself as a prisoner of Christ. That's very important because he was literally in prison when he wrote this letter. And he says, not only was he a prisoner of Christ, he says, for the sake of you Gentiles. We rehearsed the story from Acts last week where Paul was thrown into prison to save his life because he was about to be ripped apart by Jewish people in the temple who hated the fact that he was mingling with Gentiles. And so Paul was right. He was a prisoner of Christ for the sake of Gentiles. But he referred to himself as the least of all the saints. Even though God chose Paul in a supernatural way to be his messenger, it didn't cause Paul to become arrogant. He always understood that he was a sinner saved by the grace of God, unworthy of such a great honor, but an honor indeed. And he never denied the fact that God had revealed to him was the word he used. And we saw from Galatians, it was in that three years he spent in the wilderness that the Lord personally taught the Apostle Paul and told him these great truths that he now passed on to his generation and through the scriptures has passed on to us. The primary thing we took away last week was verse 10. Why did God choose to do this? Why did God put together Jews and Gentiles in something new he created called the church? Look at verse 10. He says, so that the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, wrap your mind around this. Those that were here last week, remember that I said one of the primary reasons that God saved you was to give the angels something to praise him about, right? Remember, that's the purpose of angels is to praise God night and day. They praised him because of his creativity, um, when he spoke the word and the world spun into orbit, they praised God at the crucifixion and um, they praised God at the resurrection. But they also praised God that he is bringing to pass what he has decreed to do. Would you agree with me that whatever God wills to do, he can do? That's called his omnipotence. But when we think about the will of God, it's helpful to think about the will of God from a couple of different perspectives. Now, I'm a firm believer that whatever God decides to do, he's going to do, right? Nothing can stop him. That's called God's decreed will. 
If God declares, I'm about to do something, he's going to do it. But then there's something called God's moral will, where he has declared in time past, this is who you're to be. For example, he gave us in Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments, and he says, thou shall not and thou shall, this is my will for you. But we can either obey or disobey, right? And when we disobey and we break one of God's commandments, we can't say, oh, well, it must have been God's will, right? That's not right. James says, don't ascribe your sinfulness, even temptation, to God. So we know God's decreed will when it happens, because this must have been um, God's will. And one of the things that will happen, because God has decreed it, is that the church is going to be put together until it's completed, right? Paul said to the Philippian church, I'm convinced that what he has begun in you, he will complete. God finishes what he starts. And let's see this morning, number one, this is a cause for praise. First of all, it was a cause for praise, verse 10 said, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, that's the angels, right? The angels who Peter says, long to look into these things, that is the gospel, that God would offer grace and forgiveness. Remember from our study of 1 Peter, one of the amazing truths about those living today in the New Testament times is that we have a clearer understanding of God's eternal redemptive plan than even the prophets of the Old Testament. They had an idea, but now that it's come about, we can look in hindsight at the cross and say, oh, that's what the, the Lord was, was doing. And that should be a cause for praise, not only for the angels, but for those who are the beneficiaries of God, praise. Now look at verse 11. He says, this was, that is the putting together of the church, this was in, in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the word eternal is significant. The eternality of God is one of his attributes. Meaning he had no beginning and he will have no ending. And so when it says God's eternal purpose, it means before any of us were born. And so that tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells us that the church was not an accident, right? We are not here today by happenstance or by some cosmic mistake. Do you remember Bob Ross, the painter on PBS? I know the kids won't, but I do. I grew up watching Bob Ross with his big afro and uh, beard and watching him paint his soft voice. And remember when Bob would make a mistake, he'd pick up the wrong color or he'd accidentally touch the canvas when he didn't mean to. He'd say, uh-oh, well, let's make that a happy mistake. And then he'd draw a squirrel or something out of it and add it to his, his painting. I think that's the idea a lot of people have about the church, that God had this plan. He was going to, to you know, make Israel a great nation, and then that got foiled because of their disobedience. And so he said, I'll just make the best of it and make a church out of that. That's not at all. The Bible says it was God's eternal purpose to put together the church, right? He used the means of Israel's disobedience to do it, but it's always been God's plan. Now, now what does that tell you? It tells us that we ought to give God praise because what he declares he's going to do, he does. Also tells me this, is that we in the church are not a token or a tack on or a throw in. Remember when we started this study a few months ago, I said, 
I think we need to study Ephesians because I noticed that a good number of people in our church are downcast and downtrodden and almost defeated by what's going on out in the culture. You know, they feel like we're losing, right? What's going on? Things seem to be out of control. Christians are being pushed farther and farther to the margins of the culture. And we need to be reminded who we are in Ephesians, that we're joint heirs with Jesus, that we're adopted into his family, that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been born again. We are forgiven. And we have every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And as we'll see in just a few weeks, that uh, God our Father is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ever ask or think, right? So we don't need to, to be downcast or, or defeated, but also because we understand that we've been a part of God's purpose before we were born. I said you're not an add-in or a tack-on. I like baseball, you know that. And in a couple of months, it will start to pan out of who the real contenders are. Who are the contenders and who are the pretenders, right? And those who are the the contenders will become what we call buyers. They're going to look for some players on some other teams that they could trade for to make their team better. And those teams that realize we don't have a hope of making the playoffs, we're going to get rid of some salary here, try to pick up some prospects next year. And so what will happen, say the Rangers have their eye on a star pitcher on another team, that team will say, okay, we'll trade you for this guy, but you got to take these three other guys too that we don't like so well. So we'll throw them in as tack-ons and add-ons. Listen, I know Christians who have that kind of understanding of their salvation. They can understand that, that Jesus would die for some of their friends or for some of the staff members, but he must have just let me in by the skin of my teeth or just to throw in. Not at all. He knew your name. We know he knew Jeremiah when he was in his mother's womb, but let me say this. He knew you when you were in your mother's womb. And he decided to save you. And that plan has been working itself out for thousands of years until the day that you were born, until the day that God sent a person to share the gospel with you until you bowed your knee and you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. None of that happened by accident. None of it was something he made good. It was not him making lemonade out of lemons. This was in his divine plan. And so give him praise for that. Now, secondly, it's not only a cause for praise, it's, it's a cause for confidence. Look at uh, verse 12. He says, in whom, that is Jesus Christ our Lord, we have boldness and confidence, access through faith in him. First of all, let's look at confidence. What is confidence? Well, it may be easier to define it by what it is not. Confidence is not arrogance, is it? There's no place for arrogance or foolish pride in the church. Paul says he boasted only in the cross, right? So he knew that he wasn't the one that died on the cross. Jesus did. And so if there's any boasting to do, let's, let's, let's brag about Jesus. Arrogance is an exaggerated sense of self-importance. It's exaggerated self-confidence. You, you've all seen that in individuals, and it's very off-putting. Confidence, on the other hand, is very attractive. Confidence is putting your trust in something that is real and trustworthy. And we have confidence as believers because we put our faith and trust in one who is trustworthy, right? That is the Lord Jesus. We're building our house, as it were, on a firm foundation. 
Confidence is not arrogance. Neither is confidence flippancy or irreverence. I shudder sometimes when I hear people claiming to be speaking for Jesus, speaking of him as if he is their buddy, as if he is uh, just one of the guys. And they refer to him in terms that uh, they would refer to one of the boys down at the office. Listen, God is just as holy today as he was in the Old Testament. And if you think that it's foolish to have a flippant, irreverent attitude about God, ask the sons of Aaron who offered strange fire to the Lord. And he killed them. Read about Korah in the Old Testament who turned upon Moses and Aaron and disregarded the commandments of God to follow their leadership. The ground opened up and swallowed him. Think about the man who unthinkingly reached up to steady the ark as it was about to fall to the ground and touched it against the prohibition of God and God killed him. He said, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? How about Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of property and lied about its cost so that they would appear bigger than they were in the church? Both of them were taken out dead. Now, I don't say that to, to frighten you, but just to remind you that our God is holy. You think about the people who were good people, morally, who came face to face with the glory of God. They were not flippant, right? They were not irreverent. Think about Isaiah, who was a godly man, who caught this vision of God sitting on his celestial throne with his robes filling the temple. He didn't say, hi, God. What did he do? He went down on his face and mumbled into the dirt, woe is me. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What about the New Testament? The Apostle Paul, who was one who hated Christ and the church, who was a murderer of God's people, persecutor of God's people. When he came face to face with the risen Son of God in his Shekinah glory, he went down in the dirt in a heap, blind, and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So confidence is not to be construed as flippancy or irreverence or, or over-familiarity with the holiness of God. It's the idea that we know that we are, what's the, the prepositional phrase? In Christ. And because we're in Christ, we have nothing to fear. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 1 that I keep quoting. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. So your confidence is not in yourself. So arrogance is an exaggerated self-confidence. True Christian confidence is a belief that Christ is on right relationship with God the Father, which of course he is. And that means he is our access. Look what he says again in verse 12. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Hebrews 4.16 says we are to come with boldness into the presence of the Lord, make our needs known. See, we don't have any right in and of ourselves to come into the presence of God, to pray to Him or even to praise Him. Because we are sinners and He is too pure to look on sinners. And so we have to have one who gives us access to Him. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, for through him we both have our, what? Access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles when he says both. Anyone 
who will put their faith and trust in Christ now has access to God the Father. And we can come and make our petitions known unto him. It not only gives you access to pray with confidence, it gives you confidence that you will not lose your salvation. We are Baptists after all. And we believe in once saved, always saved. Or I like to say the perseverance of the saints that we will not lose our salvation. But you ever think, why is that? Why do we have such a boldness? Isn't it arrogant of Paul to say that he doesn't have to fear the condemnation and the wrath of God because he's in Christ? Not at all. Because his confidence is in Christ. Listen, your salvation, if you're truly born again, catch this, is as secure as Jesus' place in the Trinity. As long as God the Father accepts Jesus in the Trinity and you're in Christ, your salvation is secure. And friends, there is nothing more secure than that. Because as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would be one with one another as he and the Father are one. They have perfect unity and there is no possibility of disagreement between them. Therefore, you and I have confidence in our salvation. So there's a cause for praise, there's a cause for confidence, but similar to that, he says there's a cause for boldness. Now, now boldness is also something that uh, can be overdone. It can turn into braggadocia, it can become foolish. The idea that I'm untouchable, right? That I can do whatever I want. That, that's foolish talk. Boldness is the idea that Whatever God calls me to do, I can do it because what can man do to me, right? <laughs> Paul says that uh, for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus says, fear not the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And so here's the beautiful thing. Um, did you see last week where the president uh, went over to England? And he went into the home of the, the crown prince. And it was a nice little photo opportunity there. And uh, they had a nice little meeting. But there are certain protocols, I'm told, you have to do to, to have an audience with royalty, right? You just don't walk in and stick out your hand. There are certain ways you stand. You don't look them in the eye, I'm told. And guess what? As a Christian, you have every right to go up to the Queen of England look her in the eye and say, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's what boldness is. It's not arrogance. It's not flippancy. It's the idea that you have been entrusted with divine truth that belongs to another. That's what stewardship is. And so here's why we can have boldness. Let me just give you a few reasons why. Number one, because as believers, we are on right terms with God. Do you know how much of a minority that puts you in? I am told there are seven billion people on planet Earth. And very few of them, statistically speaking, are on right terms with God. What a frightening thought. And yet, if you are in Christ, you are on good terms with your creator and your judge. Secondly, we have a right to have boldness because we know that he loves us. Those of you who still have living parents, you know that you can go and ask them for anything in the world if they truly love you. And no matter what you tell them, they're still going to love you, right? 
Well, that's the kind of relationship we have with our Father. We don't have to wonder if He loves us, because if you ever wonder if God loves you, look to the cross. No greater love is any man than he laid down his life for his friend. God gave his only son for you. What love is this? And we can have boldness because we know he invites us. <laughs> we have an invitation into his presence. When I was in school years ago, I had some friends who were like me. They did not have a lot of money. And wherever they could find a hot meal, they did sometimes not always legally. And so there, there were some folks in our dorm who uh, realized that every weekend on our campus were alumni functions, which often had some very nice meals. And so they got in the habit when they were hungry for a hot meal and didn't have any money in their pocket, they'd put on their nicest clothes and they would go over to the, uh, to the union hall where they uh, had the banquet feast and they wait till about 15 minutes after the meal was to start, and they would go out to the table where the name tags were. And they figured if, if someone was not there by 15 minutes after, they weren't coming. And so they helped themselves to a name tag, and they would go and sit down and feast on the alumni banquet. I never did that, by the way, kids. That's, <laughs> that's wrong. But I know some people who did. But I always thought, how could they possibly enjoy that meal knowing that any moment someone could come and say, that's my name tag. You don't belong here. You don't have an invitation. And I think one of the reasons a lot of Christians don't have much confidence or boldness is that's kind of how they feel about their salvation. They feel like they really don't belong. That they're kind of an add-on and someday somebody's going to come and say, you got my seat, you got to get out of here. And so they constantly live in dread and fear. Listen, here's what the Bible says. One day there's going to be a banquet in heaven. It's called the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's going to be people from all over the world there, from all corners, all cultures. And we're going to feast with the Lord Jesus. And the only ones who are going to be there are those who have an invitation. <laughs> And guess what? If you're born again, you can rest assured it's not because of some happy coincidence. It's because God's eternal purpose was to save you for his own glory. And so the idea that Christians ought to walk around with their head down, shuffling their feet, saying, what in the world are we going to do, is nonsense. Here's the attitude that we ought to have. In humility, say, I have all the confidence in the world that what my father has declared is going to happen is going to happen. And that one day, here's what he's declared is going to happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that our Lord is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're going to worship him together forever. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, what confidence it gives us, not arrogance. Because we know we didn't do it. If we were left to our own devices, we'd be in our sins. But because you chose to do it, Lord, we can have all the confidence and boldness in the world. Uh, there, there's nowhere that we won't go and there's no person we won't tell the gospel to because uh, you've told us to. You've invited us to. And Father, any prayer request that you put on our heart, we're not afraid to bring to you. Because you can do whatever you choose to do. Unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above everything we could ask or even think about. 
And so, Father, I pray for encouragement to my brothers and sisters here today as we go out into a world where we are increasingly in the minority. Give us that supernatural confidence and boldness to take the name of Jesus wherever we go. And whatever good comes from that, Lord, we'll praise you for. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.